Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. At this point, will the ushers, while they're moving everything forward, uh, will the ushers please bring the baskets forward? It's a time if you've uh, never been to our church, a church, this is the time that we give back to God. And it's our tithes and offering, and, and we're giving to God, saying, God, you know what? Everything is yours. And it's, you've given us so much, and we're giving back to you. We are a people that are so blessed. So don't feel compelled. You don't have to give anything. This is for people that consider themselves members of the church, Christ followers. So ushers, bring those baskets forward. Lord, we ask you to bless these baskets today. We thank you that it's Easter Sunday, Father, 2015. 2015 years from what, Lord? From your birth, Lord, in a cradle, Lord, in your life, 33 years later, all the way to the grave. We celebrate your life, but we don't just celebrate it today. We celebrate it, Lord, every day of our lives. May we be an Easter people. May we realize all the things that the world has to offer us pale in comparison to having a relationship with you. Amen. Thank you, ushers. Can I get a little help moving this up? Maybe I was trying to give a little cue there before about maybe moving this stuff. Somebody maybe move the flowers. Well, we're glad that you're here on this Easter Sunday. I said to you, yeah, I don't know if we realize it. I mean, even how we reckon time, to, you know, 2015, thousands of years from what? From the birth of this one in that manger and the one who gave up his life on the cross. I mean, that's how we reckon time. Isn't that kind of amazing when you think about it? Sometimes we lose sight of that. When you picked up a newspaper today, you turned on, you booted up your iPhone or whatever, your smartphone, you saw that. You saw what year it was or the date it was. Everything goes back to this one, Jesus Christ. And that's amazing. Well, we're so glad that you can be with us today. And uh, I want to start here, start our, our time with a picture as they pull up the PowerPoint the title of the 2015 Easter sermon is God's Grammar. God's Grammar. By the end of the sermon, you'll hopefully really understand what that means. Well, the picture that you'll see before you in a second is a picture of the, um, is a picture of the Library of Congress today. Here it is, right before you. That's a picture of the Library of Congress today. Uh, it used to be housed in the Capitol building, uh, but it was burned to the ground during the War of 1812 by the British. On January 30th, 1815, the government set out, they endeavored to rebuild the Library of Congress, and they did. The 3,000 volumes, the 3,000 books that were in there were kindling for this, and they said, we want to rebuild it again. So they did. And they said, you know what, where do we, get, where do we start? And what they did is they bought the largest collection of books in the country at that time that one person had, the person who owned this collection, 6,487 volumes, none other than your third president, Thomas Jefferson, who once quipped, I absolutely love books. I can't imagine living without them, but he was willing to give up his 6,487 books for a price tag of $23,950. guess he didn't love them that much. Right? When you think about it. Well, what's interesting about this is you can go today over, if you stacked every single book that is in the Library of Congress, 
it would be over 820 miles all the way from Washington, D.C. to Granite City, Illinois. I don't know much about Granite City, Illinois, but I read that and I thought it was kind of interesting. But over 800 miles of books, if you stack them end to end. And I want to talk about two of the books that were in that Jefferson collection. And the first book here, see a picture, uh, a guy by the name of Robert Esteen. Robert Esteen, many of you probably never heard that name before, but in 1555, he printed, he was a scholar in Switzerland, the first Bible was printed, part of the Jefferson Library, which had chapters and numbers in it, right? First time in history this ever happened. Jefferson has this book, kind of a cool moment. You didn't just come to church to hear the story about the, you came to get some history today, right? You with me, right? So he gets this book, he has this book, so the next time you quote the 23rd Psalm, the next time you rock a, a John 3.16 sign at a game, you have a Steen's Biblia to thank for it. That's one. The second book that was in the Jefferson Library was none other than the Jefferson Bible. I have mentioned the Jefferson Bible before, but I have never given you the real story behind the Jefferson Bible. You see, Thomas Jefferson was a student of the Enlightenment. As a 16-year-old young man, he walked into the college of uh, William and Mary. And there, he had a professor by the name of William Small. And William Small introduced him to the empiricists, people like Sir Francis Drake, people like Locke and Rousseau and Voltaire. He was a, a student of the Enlightenment. Now, understand, Thomas Jefferson had a lot of respect for Jesus and his teachings. He thought he was a great moral teacher. But what he did is he creates his own Bible by cutting out all of the miracles. Follow me? This is what Jefferson did. He really did this. You can go there. You can see this. He went through, and if there was not a moral lesson embedded in a miracle, he cut it right out. One historian said, when Jefferson got to the Gospel of John, his blade was busy. Because there were a lot of miracles in there. And this guy said, you know what? Yeah, he was really an incredible moral teacher. But I got to cut these things out. Because I don't really know if I can believe in these miracles. And it's hard to believe, right? Somebody taking a scissor or a razor to the sacred text. Any sacred text. Tell you here, digress one second. I, in, in college, I remember before a football game, I'm in a locker room getting ready, and I have my Bible out, right? Now, listen, this is football, right? Gladiators, some really tough dudes, right? One guy's like, hey, Letch, hey, Letch, why don't we take one of the pages in the Bible and burn it? We'll burn it before the game. I'm like, dude, really? Are you serious right now? I'm burning the Bible, pal. You got to screw loose. You're crazy. Can you imagine somebody cutting something out of the sacred text, out of our Bibles? Wouldn't that just be absurd? Guess what? Guess what? We do it all the time. We look at Scripture and we'll rationalize certain Scripture as too radical. That's too radical for my life. Too radical. We scrub down certain Scripture. We say, you know what? It's, it's the supernatural. I don't know if I can really go that far. It seems like some of these stories are really fairy tales. Yeah, I mean, I've been in church, you know. I come to church, but I can deal with this. This verse, this passage here. Oh, read me the 23rd Psalm. It gives me such comfort and such hope. But oh, some of those miracles, they're a little too much for me. 
I don't know if I can really take it. And what we wind up with is a neutered gospel. And we put scripture on the chopping block of human reason. God created man. One philosopher says, this is Peter Kreft from BU, philosophy professor there. God has created man in his own image, and what have we done? We just said, you know what, we'll be gentlemen, and we will return the favor, and we will recreate you in our own image. Anthropomorphism, that is the technical term. Little g, God. And we wonder sometimes, we have this picture of who God is. We're finite human beings, and we've just recreated God in our own image. Oh, God, there's only certain things you can actually really do. There's only so far that you can really go. Yeah, we've recreated God in our image. You know what? Sometimes it's not even that we say we're going to follow Jesus. It's almost like we say, Jesus, follow us. Follow me, Jesus. Come on, follow me. Follow me. I have this all under control. I understand everything. A.W. Tozer, if you know the name, Christian writer, this is what he said. He said, the end result is a God who can never surprise us, never astonish us, never overwhelm us, and never transcend us. And I'd like to add one thing. Never perform miracles. Never amaze us. G.K. Chesterton, a prolific British author from the 20th century, he put it this way. He said, how much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God could smash your small cosmos. Wow. Let me tell you what I believe this Easter Sunday. I believe in a God that is high and exalted. I believe in a God that is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. I believe in a God that is omniscient. He is all-knowing. I believe in a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I believe, I'm not done yet, I believe in a God that can tell the sun to sit still. I believe in a God that can turn water into wine. I believe in a God that can heal the lame and can heal the sick. I believe in a God who can actually take a man who has been dead for four days and bring him back to life. Do you believe in that God? I believe in a God who can make and break the laws of nature. I believe in a God that can do so many wonderful things. He works outside of the four dimensions of space and time. Do you believe in that God? Can we talk about a story this morning and how appropriate we're going to actually be? I didn't even know this until I came in here early this morning. We're going to be in John's gospel. The gospel that, again, Jefferson went through, right? When he was cutting all the miracles out. I would like to look at, if you study scripture in the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospels, right? Well, you look at John's gospel, there are seven miracles leading up to the resurrection, and this one is kind of just takes the cake. The story of Lazarus. If you have your Bibles, you would like to turn there. If you don't have one, that's fine. I'll have the verses up on the side screen. And we're going to look at this. The, the story takes up the chunk of chapter 11. I can't go through every verse. There are so, it's so nuanced. I can only hit some of the facets of this. One of those stories, I haven't preached on the story in about a decade. But it's a story that I'll preach till the day I die. And it's a story that, in looking at it, almost like I talked last week about a diamond, right? You can look at a diamond, and you can see it one way. Oh, and you look another way, you see another facet of it. That's the beauty of Scripture. That's the beauty of a text like this, that we can bring out so many wonderful truths on an Easter Sunday. And John starts here. Act as if, can I, can I, put this, can I say this, preface my comments? And our study of this text, hey, look, I'm not here to enter, I'm here to teach you today. 
I'm here to give you filet mignon. I'm not here to give you just some buff. I'm here to give you real meat. I'm here to tell you the truth of the gospel. And in this story, you have to see, it's, it's incredible, but try to see it with new eyes. Act as if you never read this story before. Act as if you never heard it before. So John starts here, he says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. The first thing I want you to notice here in the text is, you see this, Bethany is a suburb that would have been right outside of Jerusalem. Jesus would have stayed there many times. He was good friends with Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. So when he was into town, he was, as Pastor Tom always says, he would chillax at their house. He would stay there. He would dine there. I would have loved to have heard some of these conversations. They probably got to know each other pretty well. The text doesn't say that, but it kind of leads us to believe that. And I want to say this to you this morning, even up front. Let me just give it to you. I'll give it to you now. Why is the title of my sermon God's Grammar? Let me tell you. If you get nothing else out of the sermon, get this. You never, ever put a period where God puts a comma, and you never put a comma where God puts a period. Did you get that? You never put a period where God puts a comma, and you never put a comma where God puts a period. You with me? All right. So here he is. Jesus, Jesus um, hears about this story. We'll get to that. Lazarus is sick. We find out in the text is Lazarus is sick. I don't, we don't know what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe he had a lump. Maybe he was coughing up some blood. Maybe he went to a doctor. It happens every day in our world. Our world is no different. And he goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, Hey, look, sorry, Laz. There's not much I can do for you, buddy. You know what the average life expectancy was for somebody in the first century? It was 40 years old, right? Probably not, you know, probably in his 30s. Guessing, totally guessing. But here is this man. We don't know what his ailment was. We don't know what he was afflicted by. But the sisters are here in this story, and they're so desperate they have only one hope. And I want you to see this too. How much does Jesus love him? All right, you students of the Bible, do you notice the one whom you love is sick? She doesn't even have to say his name. Jesus is just going to know. Doesn't even say Lazarus' name. The one you love, Jesus, the one you love is sick because you'll know exactly who that is. This is Lazarus. And I have to imagine, we, we, we need some hope. And you're the one hope that we can look to. Moving ahead, five through seven. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. What? Can you imagine somebody is in need? Your wife or your husband needs you. There is a problem, and you're like, you know what, honey? I'll be home when I can get home. I remember last year before the birth of our second child, I get a call at work from, you know, from my wife, Megan, and she's telling me, honey, this is it. The doctor says, we got to go to the hospital. It's going to happen. This is going to happen right now. Imagine I was like, honey, you know what? i got to teach a couple more classes. You know, when I'm done, then i got to grab some lunch. When I'm done with that, then I'll make my way over to the hospital. Then I'll get to you, okay, honey? That would not have worked. I wouldn't have been sleeping in the bed. I would have been sleeping on the couch. Yeah, yeah. So we see here in the text, there's a problem. Nobody does that. You drop everything if there's somebody that you love and they're in need of help. 
Now drop down, go down to verse 16. Look what happens. This is one of the, there are some comical pieces in this text. You probably read it a thousand times. I don't know if you've ever seen this stuff. Go down to 16. Look what it says in 16. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now hold on a second. Let me tell you, what does this mean? The last time Jesus was in Bethany, doesn't say it here in the text, but the last time Jesus was in Bethany, the religious leaders tried to kill him, all right? So imagine you're the disciples, and you hear about this, that Lazarus is sick, and eventually Jesus is going to go, right? This guy Thomas, right, he kind of reminds me of Eeyore. How many of you know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? Always despondent and just gloomy, like, okay, all right. Can't you see this Thomas guy like that all the time? Like, Thomas, you and Judas get in the corner. You guys hang out over there. We'll hang out over here. Jesus, I don't want any part of that guy. He's kind of crazy. Look at this. It's comical. Let us also go so we we may die with him. No thanks, thanks, Thomas. Take it easy. Well, that's what's happening here. It's kind of funny. You have to see that in the text. John wants us to see this. He's not like a, I was thinking too, I'm like, who is he? Like, this isn't like a Dale Carnegie or a Tony Robbins kind of moment, right? It's not really, he's not really inspiring everybody. And then the story moves on. You see John 11, 21 and 22. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, Jesus finally shows up on the scene. So he's waited, right? He's waited a couple of days. Lazarus will have been dead four days. We'll get to the reason why Jesus has waited four days. Incredible. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Isn't that kind of a little passive aggressive here? Don't you see that? Kind of blaming Jesus. I'm not blaming Jesus. I'm blaming you, Jesus. Where were you? Oh, it's okay, Jesus. Going back and forth here. And I love this, that phrase there. I underlined it. If only, if only you had been here. Think about our world today and those things that we say. If only I didn't say that to the person that I love. If only I had asked for forgiveness. If only I didn't make that mistake. If only I took that job. If only, if only, if only. And you know what I love about these girls? You know what I love about her, Martha, right here? She knows that she can take her if only to someone. She can take it to someone. She has real hope. She understands that there is a place that she can take her problems. There's a place that she can take her issues. I love what Oswald Chambers says too, because sometimes God doesn't make sense. How many of you know that? Let's talk reality. Sometimes God does not make sense. Oswald Chambers said it this way. He said, sometimes it looks like God is missing the mark because we're too short-sighted to see what he's aiming for. How many of us know God's plans are not our plans sometimes? How many of you know that God's ways sometimes are, are higher than our ways? God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And with our finite minds again, we think we can understand God. We think we understand everything about him. We think we know what he should do. We know what he should show up in a situation. I'm here to tell you this morning, sometimes things have to die before they come back to life. I'm here to tell you this morning, sometimes God has to prune, and it doesn't feel good, and we can feel uncomfortable. That's a reality of the Christian life. Chambers hits it right on the head. But here is Martha. She's holding out hope. She's trusting and persevering. You know why? Because she's fixing her eyes, really, on what is unseen. You know, the Bible tells us that which is seen is temporal. It's ephemeral. It's going to be here today, gone tomorrow. But that which is unseen, that is eternal. That is permanent. 
Friends, I don't know if you, you knew it when you walked in here today. I heard Pastor Joe mention it, but you walked into a spiritual battle. Hello, welcome. Welcome to the battle. If you didn't even want to be part of the battle, you walked into it. The world that we have around us, you think it's by accident. I was reading a story this morning. I had tears in my eyes. You mentioned it. I couldn't believe it. First of all, Pope Francis, did you know he decried the Christian persecution going on in the world? He decried that yesterday? The Pope, the Catholic Pope. Yes, Pope Francis. I read an article about the Kenya University massacre. Did you see these Islamist militants? The, the things that they said, they were going around, and I, I couldn't believe this. They said it will be in their words, oh, this is going to be a good Easter for us as they slaughtered and as they massacred Christians. I'm not pitting, understand me, don't walk out and say, James is pitting Christianity against Islam. I am not doing that. I'm just here to tell you there is a battle that is taking place, and it is much bigger than just here, what is happening in Middle Island and Long Island. There is a spiritual battle taking place across the globe, and there are good, there is good, and you see the forces of good, and then the other side, there are forces of evil. Yes, they are real, they exist, and there is an enemy. Yes, let's just say it on Easter Sunday, 2015, there is an enemy that is looking to take you out. There is an enemy that is telling you, I'll go to church on Easter Sunday, but I'm not going to church anymore after that. Maybe I'll show up on Christmas, maybe I'll show up another time. He wants a real relationship with you, and the enemy wants to veil our eyes and have us see everything out there, what is out there, what the world has to offer is what we need and what we must have. That's the gospel. Jesus came to destroy that. Do you know Jesus didn't just come to forgive sins? What? Jesus came to heal us in every which way. He came to repair all of our brokenness, socially, uh, physically, psychologically, emotionally, all of us, every single part of us, he came to touch I love what Martin Luther King said. He said this. Dr. King said this. I love this. There's a difference between hope and optimism. Look at this. He said, optimism is belief in progress. Optimism is a belief that circumstances are going to get better. Optimism fixes its eyes on what is seen, and therefore, it's on pretty shaky ground. Hope. Oh, hope. Hope is the conviction that there is another reality, that there is another kingdom, and that that kingdom exists and has existed through all eternity, and it's doing very well right now, and it will prevail. It will prevail. This is not what you see. Can I go off on a tangential point for a second? What you see in the world, and we see suffering and disease, and we see kids with swollen bellies, that is not how it was in the beginning, and that is not how it will be. God tells us, he declares, he decrees, he wants us to believe that things right now, that they may look like this is the way it is. This is the way things really are. He's saying, no, this is not how things are. Things will be different. All disease will be eradicated. Death will be eradicated. No more sin, nothing, none of that. No more decay. No more entropy. None of it. That's, that's, come on, that's the good news. Do we believe that? That's what he says. And can I say this too? I don't want to get too philosophical. I'm going to deviate a little bit. When we hear of miracles, you hear of a miracle, you may be somebody in here that says, man, miracles? I don't believe in miracles. You think, or if you say there is a miracle, you do believe in miracles. Maybe you say, you know what, maybe there are some miracles that happen once in a while, that they are a suspension of the reality of the world in which we live, right? I would say to you, a miracle is the restoration 
of the world in which you live in. It is not a suspension. Every time there is a miracle that happens, every single time, God is pointing and saying, this is how things really are. This is how things will ultimately be. It is not a suspension. And you say, oh, I want this big miracle in my life. I say to you this morning, you have seen miracles probably in your life and others' lives. What about the marriages that have been fixed? I know people in here, their marriages were restored. I know people here that were addicted, drugs and alcohol, and God set them free. You're telling me that's not a miracle? Miracles everywhere. We need to have eyes to see. God is looking to restore I end the story. Oh, Dr. King. Then you go on. It gets really good now. 11, 32 and 33. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, there it is again, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Can I stop right here? Here's another problem. And as a preacher, I always try to look at a story and say, what would I put myself there in the story? Can I give you a little insight into what it was like when Jesus rolls up on the scene? When he rolls up on the scene, all right, Lazarus has been dead again four days. Did you know that people in ancient Israel, women were paid to actually be mourners? The, the, the people that had the least means in that culture, you had to have at least two professional mourners that would be there. Two, and you had to have two flute players. So there is music playing. I don't know about their means, but I have to imagine there are a couple of people that are not, we think like, (laughs) they're like kind of weep. They are wailing. This word in the Greek means wailing. It is loud as Jesus walks up in the hot sun and he walks up on the scene. People are wailing and they're crying everywhere. How about even the Romans? You know what the Romans did? This is fascinating. The Romans would collect tears. They would collect tears. And people that were, very, that were people that had a very affluent, they had a lot of money, they would pay women to collect tears. And when they died and there was a procession, the more bottles they had, the more people that were actually mourning for them, the better. Amazing. So when Jesus rolls up on the scene, you have to see that, that there is amazing weeping. There is amazing anguish here. Now, I underline this, and uh, let me tell you, a lot of the translations don't really come get to the real point or get to the real heart of what he's, because it's Jesus, we have this Mr. Rogers picture that he's kind of like meek, and he's, you know, yeah, he was a good moral teacher, right? And he's like Mr. Rogers a little bit, and he's kind of happy, hey, I'm Jesus, and what can I help you with today? What's going on? You know what this really means in Greek? Get this. When it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, it says it a couple of times in the text, he is snorting like a war horse. That's what one commentator says, what it really means in the Greek. He is bellowing with anger. He is roaring like a lion. Oh, is that the Jesus that we see on TV? Is that the Jesus we see depicted in pictures? I'm afraid not. But this is the Jesus that showed up 2,000 years ago to the grave of a man that was dead for four days. He comes in with righteous anger. What is he mad at? What is Jesus ultimately mad at? And doesn't he know he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Come on. If he doesn't, I mean, it's, it's not going to bode well for him. 
But he comes on the scene, he's looking at death, he weeps here, he's looking at death in all of its forms, injustice, racism, poverty, greed, and he weeps. Did you know that a couple of days later he also weeps as he's outside of Jerusalem and he looks at people and he looks at people just like us and they're stuck in fear. They're stuck in anxiety. They're stuck in worry. And they're just moving on with their lives so fast that they're not really think about, thinking about the important things. And he says, to, he says to himself, and he's talking to his father, and you, let me tell you, he's talking to us today, and he says there, how often I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. He weeps. Jesus weeps. He weeps because he hates the suffering and he hates death in all of its forms. You know, this past week, I was taking Jameson to school, and we got into a conversation just about everything going, you know, what the Holy Week means and everything. And the little kid says to me, he's five years old, and he just looks up to me and said, Dad, Jesus didn't have an easy life, did he? I said, no, he didn't. He didn't have an easy life. Paint a picture sometimes like he did, like it was easy and he knew everything that was going on. Listen to me. He was fully God, 100% God. He was fully divine and he was fully man, 100% man, 100%. And getting the mystery of that, we'll never fully understand that on this side. One day we hopefully will. And I love the fact, too, he doesn't come carrying a sword, right? Come on. Isn't, isn't that what everybody there wanted? He's going to come and he's going to overthrow the Roman government. He is going to establish his kingdom here. Well, I'm here to tell you again, on Easter 2015, he didn't come carrying a sword. He came carrying nails. He didn't come, right? He came to bear grief. He came to bear suffering. He came to bear everything then and now in the future. He said, I'm going to take it all. I'm going to take it on that cross. Now. You move ahead, look at verses 38 and 39 in the story. We're getting towards the end. Jesus once more deeply moved. Now you understand what this really means as Jesus is coming up on the scene. He came, come to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. They would actually, just a little interesting history here, you would be buried with your family. So they would actually have shelves on the inside of these tombs, and they would hewn, out, hewn these shelves out of rock. So you would be stacked one on top of the other. You didn't have much room in front. I mean, this is, I'm trying to get, this would be a pretty scary place to be resurrected in. A real scary place to be resurrected in. This is what's really going on here in the text. And then it says, take, he says, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, she might as well just be called Martha Stewart, right? She's pretty fastidious. She's very meticulous. Everything has to be the right way. Oh, Jesus, please don't open it. There's going to be a stench that comes from there, a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. Why does John tell us, why does Jesus wait for four days? This is one of the best parts of the story. There was an ancient Jewish belief, custom, belief, I should say, more so, a belief that when somebody died, the spirit of that person tried to re-enter the body for three days. For three days, the spirit of that person would try to come and re-enter the body. What is John saying to us? John is saying, make no mistake about it, Lazarus has kicked the bucket. He is food for worms. He's pushing up daisies. He has bought the farm. It's over. Game over. How many of you know the name Mel Blank? How many of you know that name Mel Blank? 
Mel Blanc was the, the voice of like all the Looney Tunes characters. Ah, that's all, folks. Ah. That's who the guy was, right? On his tombstone when he died. You know what he wanted written? His epitaph? That's all, folks. <laughs> this is what John wants us to see. This is what he's saying. That's all, folks. Put a period there. This game is over. Game over. It's over, please. Sayonara. And now, Jesus turns, he turns tragedy into comedy. And I don't know how many of you have seen this before, too. You look ahead, look at look in 40 and 41 now. You go, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Here's another amazing part of the story. Nowhere in the story do you know, does John record that Jesus is praying? Go read the story. Nowhere in, there, nowhere in there does it record that Jesus is praying, which leads us to believe, what was he doing those couple of days? He wasn't doing nothing. He was doing what people do when they don't know and they don't understand and they don't have answers. They pray. He was praying and he knew what his father's answer was. Uncertainty. We don't like living with uncertainty. We want to know everything. But Jesus says, look what I did. I prayed. He's waiting. He's praying. May that be us. And then here's the funniest part of this. It is just the funniest part of the story. Look what it says in verse 44. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Couldn't wait to talk about this. Did you know the average person that died in the first century? First of all, ancient Jewish custom, you know this even today, you bury the body as soon as possible, like that day, right? So the body would be prepared there would be, on average, 100 pounds of grave clothes on somebody when they died. 100 pounds. They would tie your hands to your body with linen cloths. They would do the same things with your feet at your ankles. Your head, I mean, you have to, this is what I want you to picture. Lazarus looks like a mummy when he comes out of the tomb. He's a mummy. The head average was about one foot. So much, all the linen and cloth that was wrapped around one's head would average in size about one foot. So I'm bringing this up because when he calls Lazarus out of the tomb and it says, loose him, Lazarus doesn't just walk out and be like, hey, guys, how's it going? <laughs> How you doing? This is Lazarus. Can I play it out for you? This is Lazarus, right? This is, I, come on, Jesus turning tragedy into comedy. It's, he's, he's hopping out. He's hopping out of the tomb. And I have to imagine later on, they never forgot this moment. They're like, Lazarus, at parties, and they're like, ns, ns, ns. and they're like, do the last, do the last, do the last, come on, do the last, because Jesus, Jesus turns tragedy into comedy. Do you love that? That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus, who can look at his situation, I'm sorry, the same Jesus that can rage with righteous anger yeah, can also yeah. laugh. Oh, religious spirits be gone. Not in this house. I want to go to the next party I'm going to. I'm going to do that. If you see me at a party or a wedding or something, and I'm like, yeah, baby. You know what I'm doing. I'm doing the lies. I'm going to make some money off that. <laughs> and it's interesting, too, because in John 12, 9 through 11, look what it says. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. It's only one chapter later. 
They're trying to snuff out Lazarus. They're trying to take Lazarus out. Now, church history. Can I give you a little church history? Probably nobody in here knows this. I was researching it all week. I, I don't know. I spent hours researching this. He, church, hist- Whoa. church history offers two accounts of what happened to Lazarus after this. One is that he and his sisters went to the island of Cyprus, where he was there, and he's the first bishop there. They actually created the, the church of St. Lazarus over his second tomb. That's one, one take. The second one is more interesting to me, is that he actually goes to, uh, to France and uh, trying to hide from Nero, who was persecuting the Christians. Emperor Nero, right? Trying to hide. Where does he hide? None other than a tomb. <laughs> How ironic is that, right? And then he ultimately would be beheaded under the, um, uh, under the Emperor Domitian sometime later, so 30 years after. And I bring that up because when you look at the end of Lazarus's story here, he died once again. Did you ever sit there and think of that? Not only did the dude have to die once, yeah, he was resurrected, but at some point, he got sick again. At some point, he's like, really? God, really? I have to die again once? Really? Come on. He dies again. Dies twice. As amazing as this miracle is, friends, as amazing as this miracle is, it is only foreshadowing. It is only pointing to a greater miracle. Yes, Jesus gave him a second life, and he wants to do that for us. He doesn't want to give us the life back that's full of sin and the life that Satan stole, what you saw in the skit this morning. He wants to give us new life. How many of you are chess fans? Anybody a chess fan in this house? This is a nobody. That's great. It was when I was a child. I guess I'll... After church, I'll play by myself. <laughs> um, there used to be a painting at the Louvre, and uh, the name of the painting was called Checkmate. And uh, it was painted by a man, Frederick Moritz August Reich. That's a, that's a, that's a name. Uh, painted by this guy in the 19th century. It's called Checkmate. It was actually sold by Christie's in 1999. So it's, it's held by, I don't know who the individual is that actually bought it, but he bought it for a large sum of money. And the picture, let me explain what is going on here. You see the picture, the guy in the green right there, and I'll just point up here, the, the guy in the green is supposed to be representing Satan. And I want you to see how he has a very smug look on his face, almost an arrogance, right? Do you see it? Can you feel it when you look at the picture? And the man that is across for him has that forlorn look on his face, a little like despondent. He has his head on his brow. He doesn't really know what's, oh man, this doesn't look good. And in this picture, the way the chess pieces are arranged, the name of it is Checkmate because the man on the right has lost. And he is supposed to be giving up his soul to Satan, who is on the left. There, is no, there are no more moves for him. As legend would have it, there are two men that saw this painting some time ago, right? So they see the painting, and they're both studying the painting, and one of them, unlike us in here, is an actual chess champion and understood chess very well, the ins and the outs of it, all the different moves, and he looks to his friend, and he says, you know what, this, what is this called, checkmate? This painting is a mistake. You need to understand something. The guy on the right, the man on the right, still has one more move. His king has another move. I, I don't know why. I got to see the curator. I got to tell him. They're going to change the painting or they're going to take this painting down. I'm here to tell you Easter 
2015 that the king still has one more move. Oh, friends, you look in the Bible, a man named Moses convinces a nation of oppressed slaves to run away. Music team, you can move forward. Somebody can get on that because it's Easter Sunday and we're going to blow the roof off this place. Moses convinced a nation of oppressed slaves to run away from the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Pharaoh. And then when they got to the Red Sea, the people of Israel said to him, Leader, Moses, why have you brought us here today? And I'm here to tell you, it looked like checkmate, but the king still had one more move. I think of a young man by the name of David who went down into a valley and he goes with a sling and he has five stones. And there is this big Goliath, this big giant that the Philistines have sent down and it looks like checkmate, but the king still has another move. And I think of a Daniel who is thrown into a lion's den and it looks like the lions are going to feast on his flesh. The king wakes up the next day and it's not checkmate. The king had another move. You go to the New Testament, a woman is caught in adultery and it looks like it's going to be checkmate and they're going to stone her and Jesus comes in and says, oh, it's not checkmate. I still have another move. There are thousands that are gathered to listen to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the alpha and the omega. They're here to hear Jesus. And he has some, they have some loaves and fishes. It looks like checkmate. How are we going to feed all these people? But the king still has one more move. And let's blow the roof off. It came a Friday, Good Friday, when it looked like he was, he was tried and they sentenced him. And they put him on a cross. I said he came carrying nails. And they put him on a cross. And it looked like it was the end. It looked like checkmate. It looked like the game was over. It looked like we put a period here. And that's it. That's all, folks. get up and say it is time arise my love arise my love rise from the grave because it's not checkmate I still had one more move how about you in your life today how about you in your life where is it where does it look like it's checkmate is it your finances come on your finances look I don't know how I'm gonna do this I don't know how I'm going to hold on to the house. I'm here to tell you, God, you may think that there's a period there. God says, look, I can put a comma. I still have another move. Your marriage, maybe you came in here and say, look, my marriage is in shambles. And we put the show on and we come to church, but we're really not doing well. I'm here to tell you, the king still has another move and it's not over until he says it's over. 
I don't know what is your job. Even you got a bad health report. You got a bad health report. I know a God that still heals. Still heals. A God who knows. A God who loves. A God who cares. A God who has the last move. And he changes periods. And he puts commas. this morning I was going through just my inventory of over the years and just recently I looked at an article Brad Pitt there was an interview with Brad Pitt and he was talking about all of his fame and all the success that he had and he's like there's still something missing Tom Brady you want a sports illustrate Tom Brady won his fourth title he was in an interview there's still something missing I love football I love my wife I love my family there's still something missing Jim Carrey, I wish everybody could experience success. I wish everybody could experience fame to see that it's not worth it. What are you chasing? What are you putting above having a relationship with him? I know life is busy. Come on, I have kids too. I understand that. I'm not just saying that as a preacher. I have a full-time job outside of this. I understand what it's like. You don't have somebody that just does this full-time. Me, and they did. my parents are the same way. So many things going on. Understand, he wants you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Can you give him that? I'm telling you, you will never be disappointed. At the end of your life, you're never going to say, why did I spend so much time with other people? Get with the body. People, how do people do it alone? If that is you, how do you make it alone without a community of support? I couldn't make it. I beg you, I implore you to come back next week Pastor Tom, you're like, who's Pastor Tom? He is one of the greatest speakers in the country. In the country. He will be back next week, and he'll be bringing a message. Listen, this is a place you can bring your fears, you can bring your concerns, you can bring your questions. Bring, just bring, we bring reality to this place. Come on. I beg you, come on. Come back. Come back. Not for me. For you. Not for me. For you. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.